Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. On today's episode, episode 9, we're going to be getting into the classic album by Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Stitt, and Sonny Rollins, entitled Sunny Side Up. And so before we get into the album itself, I want to start out with our jazz question of the week. First of all, Max, how are you doing? And second of all, the question I have for you is, how are you able to tell which saxophone player is playing during their solos on the album? And what contributes to each of their individual styles? Because I know even for me and definitely for probably for some of our listeners, it could probably be hard to tell whether it's Sonny Stitt or Sonny Rollins playing on the album. So how do you tell between the two of them, Max? Well, as a saxophone player, it's, um, I don't know, maybe ingrained in me a little bit more or I just intuitively can tell the differences in their individual sounds and styles um, just a little bit easier, I think, than, than maybe people who play other instruments or, or other listeners that are more or less into the jazz tra- tradition. Um, so there's a lot that can contribute to a person's sound. One is the tone that they make as a player, which is um, influenced by the shape of their own mouth and the way that they are positioning their lips and their tongue while the mouthpiece, the saxophone mouthpiece, is actually physically in their mouth. So we call that the embouchure. So there's a lot of different uh, ways to make an embouchure. There's there's kind of one general way to do it for saxophone, and then there are certain um, differences amongst players about how they approach their own embouchure. So sometimes players have their bottom lip out further or in further in terms of out going out towards the saxophone or if it's in closer to them um, towards themselves in their own mouth. And so what that does, that can soften the tone or that can um, darken the tone that the individual is making on the instrument. So just try to listen for the differences in the overall sound. It seems like Sonny Stitt, his tone is just a little warmer and mellower. and you can tell that on this album versus Sonny Rollins, who has just a slightly, I don't know, deeper or heftier sound um, that's more reminiscent to a player like Coleman Hawkins. Um, and if you don't know in the history of, of if you look up, you know, the influences of Sonny Rollins and, and where his sound kind of comes from, he's kind of known for mixing both Lester Young and Coleman Hawkins in his, in his approach. And, also, of course, the the bebop uh, licks and ideas that people like Bird, Charlie Parker, um, really, you know, solidified and, and played all the time. You know, that's part of Sonny Rollins' language on the horn, but his sound is, is kind of more like a Coleman Hawkins. Um, and so you can just, if you tr- just try to listen to their individual to- tones, excuse me, you can really tell tell those differences. Um, also, other things to listen for is how they articulate, which is how they approach certain notes. You know, do they play certain notes shorter or longer, or how do they end their phrases or begin their phrases is another way to tell the difference between them. Um, and all the go-to sort of improvisational ideas 
you know, it seems like if you listen and, and you really check out what Sonny Stitt is doing, a lot of his stuff is, is kind of, there's a lot of diminished licks he pulls from. Um, and there's just some really go-to bebop oriented um, ideas that he verbatim plays and, and pulls from in his playing when he's soloing, whereas Sonny Rollins seems to be just slightly more playful and, and is known for really developing as he goes. He'll lay an idea and then he'll add to that idea and change it in a number of different ways within the same, you know, four or eight bars of whatever that initial idea was. So just their approaches and their improvisations is different. Their tone is different and their style, their articulations are different. Yeah, Max, I think that's a really good and comprehensive answer. And just the way, the best way to be able to tell saxophone players apart and really players in jazz of any instrument is to listen and to listen to them a lot. And you'll be able to pick up on and listen for the things that Max is talking about. Listen for their tone, their articulation, the way that they like to play and the, you know, the licks they like to use. And over time, you'll be able to, to, you know, hear a saxophone player like with me, especially for pianists and definitely some saxophone players, I can just hear and instantly I'm just like, OK, that's Oscar Peterson. I can tell by the style in which he's playing. And it's just because I've listened to so many hundreds of hours of Oscar Peterson playing that you get so familiar with their technique that, you know, you like I had to ask Max, I was like, Max, can you make me a roadmap of who's playing on this album just so I don't mess it up? I was like, because I've listened to these guys, but not enough. And Max is like, oh, are you serious? And for Max, it's no question. He can tell them apart so easily. But for me, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to get it wrong. Like, I don't want to be thinking I'm listening to one of the guys and be listening to the other just because I'm I'm not really familiar enough to be 100 percent certain um, of which one's which. Absolutely. And that's mainly because, number one, as I mentioned, you know, I'm a saxophone player. So I've I've you know, I maybe it's a little easier for me to tell because it's what I've been listening to and been trying to copy and emulate. And I've transcribed a bunch of Sonny Rollins. So I've tried to imitate his sound Um, or, you know, another guy I really like is Gene Ammons. I've tried to imitate his style and sound or or, you know, just different guys I listen to some Johnny Griffin. Um, and so if you do that enough with, with, you know, one player, I know a guy in town, he's a friend of mine and, and one of his, his main guys is Sonny Stitt. So he's transcribed a whole bunch of Sonny Stitt. And so if you do that and you learn their solos, you get into their approaches, the sound, their improvisations, um, their range on the horn, you know, what, what is an idea that they constantly use in multiple different situations, you know, musically or harmonically or melodically, um, you know, what is, is, is their way of playing? Because a really key thing about uh, jazz musicians is, is that they're going to have an individual style that can be traced by their own influences and what those influences did in their playing. Yeah. And I kind of equate it to, almost listening like when we hear our friends talk and we can recognize their voice like i've heard max talk enough to where i recognize it's max by what he's saying his inflection and it's kind of similar to when you listen to a certain player enough when you listen to enough coltrane coltrane's pretty easy because he's got such a unique sound but when you listen to enough gene ammons 
you can you instantly it's almost like hearing your friend's voice you can just hear like you can you understand what they're saying because you've heard it so often it's really familiar so i think what max is saying there is yeah you you know when you listen to one guy and you can transcribe some of his solos and things like that you can it's almost just like hearing them talk to you through their instrument so you're, you're able to 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 pick up on it that quickly so um, yeah, that's a great point. And that's, you, you really filled out like all the, the different ways to, to be able to, to tell different people apart. So I, that was a really good answer, Max. Let's get into the history on this album. There's not a lot to talk about the history, but there is, um, one important thing to note, but more importantly, we'll get into the personnel and talk about the people on the album a little bit before getting into the breakdown. So the history, it was recorded. Um, you know, we said Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Stitt, Sonny Rollins, recorded in December of 1957 in New York City, and it was released two years later in 1959. And what's pretty much, I think, most important about it is that it was uh, on the newly launched Verve label, which has become very well-known, and many cats have played on the Verve label. So this was, uh, you know, came out when that label was pretty new, which I think is significant. Yeah, that label was uh, started by a guy named Norman Grants, who, if you don't know the history of Norman Grants and his place in this music, you really should check him out and check out what he's done. He was very influential in a lot of different aspects of, of the recording of jazz music and also putting on concerts. So he was the guy that ran all the jazz at the Philharmonic series concerts, which if you don't know what those are, they were, he started that in 1944, um, right around there. And he used, you know, a lot of, just really heavy swing guys. I know Illinois Jaquette, um, Flip Phillips. Later, he would do a lot with Oscar Peterson and Beep Ben Webster, um, Benny Carter, and and just a bunch of guys that that are just really swing oriented and can put on a real show. Um, so he he was very influential in uh, desegregating musical audiences at a concert. So he was with his jazz at the philharmonic series he kind of um was the first very very mainstream in a you know big concert hall setting to desegregate um the listener audience for a concert and that was you know the mid 40s so he's he's influential not only in in the music realm but also in the overall historical um you know art classic american issues of 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 racism and and going through you know the racial strife and the civil rights movement he was uh, an initial player in that in that way so really look up norman grants and the history of the verve record label because there's so much so much there to learn and gather from yeah i think it's definitely really important and one thing we want to do on this show is to highlight some of the important history in jazz and we would wouldn't be doing a great job if we didn't talk about the people who weren't players, people on record labels and people who are promoters and such things such as that producers. You know, if we didn't talk about Rudy Van Gelder, we wouldn't be doing a good job, you know, and the guys like Norman right. Grant. So I think it's really important. I think Max brings up some great points. The desegregation at a time before the civil rights movement um, when, right. you know, audience was were so segregated. So and jazz is something that obviously can bring people together you know it's a very eclectic mix of musicians from different backgrounds and that's one thing that i love about jazz but let's get into the personnel on the album i'm gonna let max talk about the 
the horn players on the album, and then I'll get into the rhythm section. So, Max, why don't you take us away with the, the horn players? Absolutely. There's so much I could talk about with each of these guys. I mean, there are whole books written on them. Um, so I won't mention everything and, you know, there's some stuff I'm going to have to leave out, but I'm going to just give a general brief overview of these players and everything they've done. Of course, first we have the Dizzy Gillespie trumpet player, uh, composer, and also singer. And he does sing on this, on uh, one of the tracks on this album. And he's really well known as just an overall band leader. And he's had just so much influence in this music he was originally born in south carolina in the year 1917 his father was a band leader um so a lot of these guys were just initially born into a musical family and you'll notice that with each of these players i'm going to mention um that dizzy you know because he was surrounded by the music he started on the piano at four years old and he just really was digging into the music and he taught himself trombone and then later trumpet. And he always dreamed of becoming a jazz man after hearing uh, the great swing player, Roy Eldridge, who is another very influential trumpet player and who had a lot of um, just overall influence on Dizzy and his playing. So as Dizzy started listening and playing more, he was gigging starting in the 1935, and he later played with Cab Calloway in 1939. Um, but Dizzy was playing too many notes for Cab Calloway. And, you know, Dizzy is really one of the, the bebop kind of incubators. And so he was fired from Cab Calloway's band in 1941. Um, you know, Cab just disliked the bebop way of playing. And so he said, Dizzy, you're doing too many notes. <laughs> and I think also they got into a, a fight. Um, so they just, something happened. They didn't get along and, and he was fired from that band. Later on, he played with Earl Hines, which we mentioned in Satchmo of Pasadena, how a lot of bebop guys played with um, swing era players and especially with Earl Hines. He then went on and joined Billy Eckstein's band. We've also mentioned that one. Another kind of uh, go-to for a lot of modern bebop players at the time. Um, and through those experiences, he really became known as, as a bop player. And he was performing with Bird in 45 to four, uh, 44 to 45. And then later he had his own big band by 1947. And that's kind of where he grew as a band leader. And he had hits like Manteca and Tintendio, which... Um, was also influenced by Afro-Cuban music. And so you'll notice a lot of that uh, approach is, is mixing of styles, and, and Dizzy loved the Afro-Cuban thing. So he often pulled from that as a composer. And along the way, you know, if you know Dizzy, you know his trumpet bell is bent upwards, and he has big puffy cheeks when he plays. And so that happened because at a party, somehow his bell on the a regular you know normal looking trumpet was bent upwards but he tested it he played the trumpet anyway he liked the sound and it just seemed to project a little bit easier and so he just kept it and he had horns that were especially made for him to have that bent in them and so that became dizzy's thing later on he continued to play toward the world he led the united nations orchestra in the 1980s he also was a soloist with stevie wonder 
And then in the early 90s, he developed pancreatic cancer, and he had to stop playing right around 1992. And in 93, he passed away due to cancer. He had a very, very interesting life and also personal life. He is one of the few jazz greats to be married to the same woman for a very long time. <laughs> he was married to Lorraine Willis um, for 53 years. Um, and also, he was a little politically active. He had promoted himself in the 1964 uh, general election for president as a write-in candidate. Um, so he just also had very interesting uh, religious ideas. And, and um, he just was an all-around very, uh, I don't know, worldly cat and interesting player and interesting person so feel free to check out there's so much more to talk about with dizzy gillespie yeah i think he's just one of the most influential players and trumpet players and one thing i want to point out just an interesting fact is the the bent uh bell christian scott atunde also you know uses the same kind of trumpet so it's cool to see modern cats kind of taking from things and something that happened by accident so i think that's just a a cool story about how that happened with with him at that party yeah yeah it's one of those things you know that's that's uh defines what dizzy is all about and his approach and his style and it's part of the music you know um so it's good to know those things and then really to me the two that shine on this album are Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins the sax players. And so if you don't know Sonny Stitt is known for playing both the alto and the tenor sax. If you want to check out some of the best alto sax jazz playing, listen to Sonny Stitt sits in with the Oscar Peterson trio. That's a great record and that's a great representation of what he can do on alto. And then I think on this album, this is a great representation of what he can do on tenor. Um, so he's a player to, to really get into. Sonny Stitt, born in Boston in 1924. His dad, a college music professor. So again, born into that initially uh, musical family. But he was adopted. And that's um, where his last name comes from, is from his adoption. Because um, the adoptive family's name was Stitt. Originally, he was named Edward boatner jr edward hammond boatner jr so a little interesting there he as he grew up he was playing in local swing bands in michigan he eventually met bird in 1943 and apparently they both recognized that they both sounded very similar and so the cliche with sunny stid is that his alto playing sounds a lot like charlie parker and he's basically just kind of copying charlie parker but if you actually transcribe what he's doing and, and listen to a lot of Stead on alto, that's not really true. Um, if you dig in and, and really listen to what he's doing, you can initially, you know, generally say that they're both very similar on the alto sax and they have the same, you know, really bop heavy um, approach. But if you dig in, you know, it's kind of insulting to Sonny Stitt to say he's just a bird clone because it's not exactly true. But that's kind of the reputation he got. And so because of that, he started adding in the tenor sax into his playing. And on saxophone, on the tenor saxophone, he had a more unique sound. So he, a lot of times he, he stuck with that in, in different settings. He would go on to join Dizzy's big band um, and, and around that time started playing a lot more tenor. He had a group with uh, Gene Ammons, 
where they had dueling, you know, tenor saxes from 50 to 52. And then in the 60s, they would do that again. And then they would, they would, you know, tour and record again in the 70s. So some of the best Sonny Stipp playing is, is on his records where it's him and Gene Ammons both on tenor. He was also a part of the Miles Davis Quintet in 1960, but very for a very short period of time, Miles was kind of changing his his direction musically, and and Stitt just really wasn't matching what Miles Davis wanted to do. Um, so he was only briefly with Miles, um, and can, he continued to play and record into the 70s until his death in 1982 from cancer, and he had a lot of issues with alcoholism. And so that's uh, eventually what led to his death. Yeah. And unfortunately we see, we've talked about this before, but you know, a lot of jazz musicians who have those vices and, you know, died of cancer or certain things, lung cancer, we talk about a lot. So yeah, it's unfortunate to see guys, you know, in that era to, that had those, those issues. Yeah. You'll, you'll notice there's bouts of alcoholism, a lot of issues with heroin and drugs and, and a lot of substance abuse. Um, and that's for a number of reasons, but you'll, you'll notice that in this period of jazz, especially. Yeah. So Max, why don't you tell us about, uh, Sonny Rollins? Yeah. The other Sonny on the album, (laughs) he, uh, was a player on tenor sax from the get-go. He's widely recognized as one of the most influential jazz musicians. He's recorded over 60 albums as a leader. He was born in 1930. And for those who don't know, he is still alive. He's not really playing anymore, but um, he's still around to this day. And his, his, you know, his music has been, has been so influential to not only saxophone players, but to the world in general. Um, so if you don't know him, please check him out again, um, born in 1930 in New York city. He got his first saxophone by the age of eight. And later on in high school, he played in a band with a lot of jazz greats, including Jackie McLean, Art Taylor. Um, he was influenced by guys like Louis Jordan, Prez, uh, Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster, Illinois Jaquette. And so listening to those records and as he did, and I think he did a little transcribing, you know, you can tell from his playing later on that those foundations are always present in everything that he's doing. Um, and then right around 1949 is when he started recording and, and hitting the scene as a professional. And so he was only, I think, 19 years old, maybe 18 years old, um, so by 18, he already had a lot of things together. And so he was recording with Babs Gonzalez in 49, appeared with guys like Bud Powell in the early 50s. He recorded with Miles Davis for a little bit in the, the mid-50s. And his classic compositions, Oleo and Doxy, are from those recordings he did uh, with Miles. And, you know, we mentioned the vices that, that guys would, would have and, and Sonny Rollins early on was addicted to heroin, but fortunately he broke his heroin habit in 1955 and really became a clean cat. He began releasing his own albums in 56 with the great album saxophone Colossus. If you don't know that record, please check it out. We'll probably go over it at some time in the future. 
he um he constantly worked on his sound and approach and he was always developing what he was doing so there were at least two periods where he took a musical sabbatical and during those two years sabbaticals that what he would do is he would really just shed and practice and and really get into his style and change what he's doing and he was always interested in progressing and and being you know ch changing up his artistry in a lot of different ways there's one before the album the bridge where before that album the bridge he literally practiced underneath <laughs> a bridge in new york city i think it's called the washington bridge um for for like a year and a half he would just practice under the bridge because he liked the sound that he would get um acoustically and just playing outdoors i guess you know made him expand what he was doing on the instrument yeah that's really that's really interesting and it just shows you how dedicated to some like some of these guys are to developing their sound even you know 20 years into their career they're still wanting to find new ways to 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 develop their sound they're not just sticking to the things that they know so i think that's that's interesting and yeah we see it's it's unfortunate because we see guys who have different breaks in their careers for different reasons you know whether it be heroin addictions um this is for a good reason the sabbatical to you know to practice but we talk about dexter gordon in a previous um episode and his 10-year nearly decade-long sabbatical due to some some uh i think heroin addiction as well with dexter yeah um it was yeah i believe so and right this is for a really good musical reason and fortunately, Sonny Rollins was able to kick his his heroin habit pretty early on. Yeah. And so, so everything else is is just really golden and authentic, and you know, very musical. And and Sonny Rollins is also kind of spiritual, and a lot of in his you know kind of overall approach. So I think for those reasons, it's really cool to see you know the trajectory and the history of Sonny Rollins. Um, and it's all recorded, which is amazing Yeah, because um, we can check out and hear those differences for ourselves. Um, and that's a lesson in itself that that's a great thing about a lot of this music we call jazz is that there's it, it is recorded and it's always approachable and we can reference it for anything else that we're doing. Um, yeah. And jazz different than like some other genres guys have such large discographies they record so many albums especially back in these days that you can really hear you know guys throughout the years which is cool to be able to hear so many different examples of of Sonny Rollins playing one thing you said he's spiritual and I just wanted to say that to play under a bridge for a year and a half I think you'd have to be at least a little <laughs> bit spiritual to go through doing that so I think you're right yeah so, um, so I'm I'm gonna get into the rhythm section just briefly. Um, there's definitely s stuff to be talked about, but I feel like we're gonna have these guys back on the podcast later because they're all really um, influential cats and played a lot with guys in the era. So I'll just give you the cliff notes now, and if we have them on again, we can go in a little bit deeper. Um, so firstly, we have Ray Bryant on the piano, and he was a pianist, but also a composer and an arranger. And he was born in Philadelphia, and like many other jazz musicians, his parents um, were musicians, played the piano, and he also had musical brothers. We'll get into one very soon. Um, he started gigging when he was 
age 12 and he was snuck into bars in Philadelphia to play when he was 12 years old. And he had a lot of different musical influences, um, including gospel music. And he kind of morphs his career later. And so we'll talk about that. But yeah, he began playing in the church and became, uh, he actually became the house pianist at the Blue Note Club in Philadelphia, which is pretty, pretty cool. Um, And then he recorded for Prestige Records, played with Art Taylor, Coleman Hawkins, Carmen Ray, and Art Blakey. And he formed his own trio in 1960. And he also recorded with Aretha Franklin, and that's what I was talking about earlier. Earlier, he had a bit of an R and B crossover success. So he re- he played with Aretha Franklin for a while, um, and so yeah, and he died in two thousand and eleven. Um, so he was also kind of popular overseas. I know he toured Europe and Japan quite often. Mm. Um, so he was kind of well known overseas as well. And he, he kind of had, had a long career and a long life. And I just want to mention, you know, you mentioned at age 12, he was gigging. You know, he was making money to to be snuck into bars and to play for groups at age 12. Um, so if you're doing it then, <laughs> you know you have a future in it as you keep going. That's such a Philly thing to do, have a 12-year-old, yeah. like, <laughs> sneak him in the back door of the bar to play the piano, so... Yeah, so let's get into to Tommy Bryant, who is on bass and is Ray Bryant's uh, brother. So he was also born in Philly, and he started playing bass at the age of 12, and he played with uh, some local bands, but then he served in the military in Korea and then began touring and performing again in 1956. He played with Papa Joe Jones, Charlie Shavers, Roy Eldridge, Benny Golson, and also... Um, the Ink Spots, and he also recorded with Mahalia Jackson, who is a really prominent gospel singer. Yeah, you'll see his name in in a couple of different random places like that. Um, but I think he was with the Ink Spots for a long time, something like fifteen years almost. So um, he had a you know a lot of interesting um, connections there with Tommy Bryant and the Bryant brothers in general. So is. Do, is Bobby Bryant, is he related to them? Do you, the trumpet player? I don't know if he's the same age. I don't think so. Okay, because that, that, that's another Bryant. Um, I'll get into, uh, you can look that up while I talk about the drummer, who the drummer is Charlie Persip, and he was born in New Jersey in 1929, and he was playing drums by high school. He performed with Tad Dameron, the pianist, toured with Dizzy's Big Band in the mid-50s, and... By the 1960s, he had recorded with Lee Morgan, which he recorded with Lee Morgan a good amount, and he played on the album Pecking Time, Pecking Time with Lee Morgan, um, which is a really popular album. Uh, He played with Zoot Sims, Red Garland, Gene Ammons, Dina Washington, and he began teaching in the mid-1970s in New York and led his own big band in the 1980s. And he kept teaching and playing even into the 2000s, and he just recently passed away in 2020 at the age of 91. So he lived a really long life. He has a really large discography, played with lots of guys in so many albums he was on throughout the 50s and the 60s. So just a, a really massive discography. Yeah, you will find his name in a lot of places too. Um, you know, drummers get around and and they play with everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if Bobby Bryant was related. I, I don't, I, 
I don't think so. Okay, okay. Um, I'm going to try and confirm that as we keep going. Yeah, I just I don't know where Bobby was from and I just the Bryant last name. I I didn't know if uh, there was any chance he was related. But this right. is uh yeah, this is saying Bobby Bryant was born in Mississippi. Oh, okay. Uh, then probably in not. The 30s. Yeah. Okay. I don't think so. I knew he was a, around the same age and with the same last name, so I didn't know if there was any chance that Well, I don't know. Um We'll have to confirm at a later date. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll hold on to that one, and we'll we'll do some more some more researching. But all right, well, let's get into the actual album breakdown now, and let's get into the first track on the album. Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about the tune, the history of "On the Sunny Side of the Street"? Yeah, it's a classic standard you'll hear cats play. Um, originally written by Jimmy McHugh which we've mentioned before. He's kind of one of the most prolific songwriters of the 1920s through the 1950s. He's written over 500 songs. Um, other songs he's known for are Exactly Like You. Um, so it's just all over the Great American Songbook. I did see a thing where it was a little bit disputed. Some people think or, or they say that Fats Waller actually wrote On the Sunny Side of the Street, and he sold the rights to the song to Jimmy McHugh or his company or what have you. Um, so I don't know. I, I couldn't figure out if I could confirm that or not, but I've seen that in association with the history of this song. Yeah, it does sound like something that you maybe could could attribute to, to something that sounds like Fats Waller would have written, like an Ain't Misbehaving, some, a similar kind of, of mm-hmm. tune. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it, I don't know if it's possible to confirm it, but that's an interesting little... Um, tidbit about the the history of the the writing of the tune yeah and it's um it's just you can do so much with that song and it's just one of those classic hits that i think will always forever be used in 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 referenced in the repertoire and it's also something that will forever or at least almost forever be recognizable to play on a gig so it's and it's kind of happy too so people dig it you know people want people want to hear this tune uh, more than you would think and this is a really cool version that's on sunny side up um because of dizzy gillespie i think there's a lot of really neat arranging on this album and by this time you know he had his big band together for about 10 years and you know i would assume he arranged a lot for his big band and and was great at, at putting harmonies together amongst different horn sections and different horns so I think that comes from from Dizzy on this album, or at least his influence. Um, yeah, what do you think, Dwight? Yeah, I just wanted to say that it almost this, especially this track, it almost kind of feels like a big band arrangement of the song, but it's played with just a few horn play, you know, in a smaller ensemble. Um, and we'll get into why, but I think the way they play over the the bridge and the melody is really reminiscent of a of a big band arrangement. Absolutely. You can tell that right from the beginning of the track because they start out with this kind of ominous chord that sounds similar to the start of a big band arrangement. Um, And it's kind of a gotcha moment to me when the head comes in at the six second mark because there's a long drawn out crescendo from the horns and you think they're going to go into, I don't know, some sort of really, really big uh, sort of almost symphonic type sound um, or or intricate big band arrangement but no they just start the tune (laughs) kind of out of nowhere at that six second mark um and as they 
they start that sort of uh i think it's the that start that crescendo into the head it kind of sounds like one of the sunnies starts that hit of of the note just a little bit sooner than the other two players and you know it, it's interesting to hear little things like that you know are the horns together throughout the whole thing or do they start off differently or or what happens with each player's treatment of their their part in the arrangement yeah for sure and um I like the way that they play the melody all together over the A sections and kind of what we were talking about is there's this really unique call and response on the bridge. And I just think that that's such a unique way to play the bridge that this version of the song really sticks out in my mind. When I think about this song, that's often one of the ways I think about this bridge is that call and response style that they do on the bridge. Absolutely. If you don't know, it's an AABA tune, 32-bar form. It's a nice swing and tempo most of the time, and they do that here. But you're right, the head is pretty unison. Um, but that's hard, harder to do than you would think, especially if you have you know, uh, an instrument in there that's different from the other two. So you got two saxes and a, and a trumpet. And you know you have to be really good at blending and listening to one another and playing as a section. And they do that pretty well here. Sometimes... If you get that from jazz musicians, at least jazz musicians who haven't played together a whole bunch, it's they may not pull it off as well. Yeah, I definitely think it can be harder for guys to do than you might think, because a lot of one thing that a lot of guys like to do is they like to kind of play the melody their own way. And the melody might say one thing on paper, you know, the way it's written. But a lot of guys will take a melody and they might not play it exactly the way it's written on the paper. So you gotta, you know, you've really got to be listening and blending well, like Max said, and you all have to like play the melody together in the same way uh, to really uh, achieve, you know, this kind of unison, which is which is nice because they they're really together on this. So that's right, um, and that call and response between the saxes and Dizzy, you know, that's not a part of the melody, but they make it a melody you know, in the way that they're doing it. And it's such a cool technique. You can do a lot to that bridge and you get a sense of what the melody is later on um, because Dizzy sings it. But uh, right there, that call and response is very neat. And then we get the first solo from Sonny Stitt. And you can tell right away how much of a swinging player he is. He starts off kind of uh, just nice and easy with some half notes. And then he gets busier by the start of the second A. He's got some classic bop language. Listen for how he, how well he is going in and out of double time into regular eighth note time. And listen for how he ends his phrases. Right at 139, you can hear how well of a, of a player he is when he's going from one section of a tune to another and how cadential and, and you know, you get a real sense of finality with how he's ending his phrasing at the end of that A section into the bridge. Um, he's just really one of the best players to listen for in how to do that. And his double time lines later on during the bridge are absolutely killer. They're so in the pocket. His whole A section pretty much is all double time. So if you want, <laughs> want a lesson in how to play double time better, listen for Sonny Stitt on his solo on Sunny Side Up um, because he gives you so many chances to listen for that. 
later on in the solo he's back to swinging cool eighth notes on that last a section and the whole solo is just one chorus and you'll notice that each horn player only does a one chorus solo on this track but there's so much that sunny stip puts into one chorus that it really is satisfactory in everything he's given me yeah i agree with a lot of the things you're saying there i really like how simply he starts the solo with the half notes and then but it leads into just a super tasteful lick and another thing, I won't say much because I think Max covered it well. One thing I love about Stitt is that he is really bop heavy and there are a lot of bop heavy lines, but he mixes in a lot of soul and swing elements into it as well. So it doesn't just feel like it's all chops all the time. He really mixes in, you know, some soul and some swing. And I want to echo what Max said. There's just incredible use of dynamics through his phrases and so he his phrases move dynamically and also like Max said is there's this finality and I like that you can tell when the A section is ending and you're moving into the bridge you can tell it's a new section in the form and the way he finishes one phrase and then starts another phrase over the bridge I think that's a, a really cool I um approach rather than just blowing all the way into the bridge and through the bridge so yeah i definitely agree with pretty much everything max is saying there and i like stitt's approach there and so next we get a, a muted trumpet solo from dizzy gillespie which is very in character he's one of the guys that's really known for you using a mute um while playing a solo so yeah um i like he quotes the melody but he doesn't do it right away which i like um sometimes you'll get get guys who come in with their solo and they'll instantly quote the melody he plays four bars you know of, of his solo and then he quotes the melody in the fifth bar of the a section at around 221 so i really like that and there's a really cool repeated idea that he does uh from 244 to 251 max what did you think about dizzy's solo on this one there's so much to get from anyone in their solo, but you really get a sense for how musical Dizzy Gillespie is when he's playing his solo on this track. He has a really neat use of space um, in addition to the things that you're talking about. And if you just listen to how he's improvising, there's really nice falls from one note to another um, and the way he's connecting certain notes is very unique and it's it's pop oriented but it's also you know you can tell it's part of dizzy's overall sound and approach um he's also good at at adding in very rhythmic ideas you can hear that on the start of the bridge he also has some diminished licks and ideas at bars um six through eight of the bridge so really listen for his treatment of the bridge versus sunny stit um and both are great ways to play but there's you know there's two different instruments and two different players so they're going to approach it differently um and then after the dizzy solo we get sonny rollins and again they're just taking one chorus each but to me you can tell it's sonny rollins from his heftier tone he sounds a little bit more unique he's very playful as i alluded to earlier and you can hear that in the solo where he really sticks to one idea and develops it during that first a section he also has a really cool use of space. And then he does some busier lines in the second A section. And it kind of sounds like Tritone Sub, or he's messing around with uh, chordal extensions at the start of the bridge at 351. He also has some ni nice rhythmic falls on his horn. Right at 402, you can hear that. And that is classic Sonny Rollins. Um, you kind of get that from players like 
Joe Henderson, but the way Sonny is doing it right there at 402, that is, you know, essential to some of the stuff Sonny Rollins typically does when he's improvising. And he also has some really nice triplet rhythms. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> I was just going to say he has some really nice triplet rhythms all during that last A section. And that's really kind of hard to do to go in and out of the eighth note feel into the triplet feel. Um, and mm-hmm. he does that like, you know, just very supremely. Yeah, I think that that's one thing that you say, and we'll talk about uh, definitely into this album, is Sonny Rollins' feel. He has incredible feel. Um, probably some of the best feel that you'll you'll really hear. So I, I like that you touch on that there. I love the repeated idea to begin the solo. It's different than the way that Sonny Stitt starts the solo. Sonny Stitt starts kind of slow with half notes, kind of simple. And Sonny Rollins is a little more playful, just repeats an idea, um, which is cool. And yeah, I want to touch on something that Max said, is the very full sound that that Rollins has. And that's how you can start to discern different saxophone players from each other is listening to that and telling, Oh man, like that's a little bit more of a full and fat sound. Um, when Sonny's play, Sonny Rollins is playing versus Sonny Stitt. I, if I just say Sonny, we're going to confuse everybody so much. <laughs> Sonny Rollins. Um, and one thing that I really like that Sonny Rollins does on this is he has really good space in his solo. And one thing that that, um, allows to happen when you use space like that is you allow the rhythm section to swing and fill in that space. When you're just playing note, 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 note continuously, it can be hard for the rhythm section to really feel the swing from the rhythm section. But when you give it space, you can feel the swing from the rhythm section that's filling in that space. So I really appreciate Sonny doing that, uh, Sonny Rollins doing that on this solo. Yeah, and space also allows for more interaction between the horn and the rhythm section. You know, there are different treatments you can do behind certain players and their improvisations that you don't do for other players. So if there's, a, for instance, a player that's more rhythmic, then there's probably going to be more rhythmic interplay between the drummer and the soloist. If a player is more melodic, there might be more interplay between him and the piano player. Um, you know, so those instances can occur usually if you use space in your solo, at least at some point. And so Sonny Rollins is great at doing that. And he also allows for development to occur because of that space. He can take an idea, give it some time and really build on that one idea he started with and go from there, which is something that he is one of the best at, not only on saxophone, but as a just an overall musician in general. So really dig what Rollins is doing. Um, and in this track, we get some vocal from Dizzy Gillespie. And he starts singing the head um, after the Sonny Rollins solo. And you can hear Sonny Stip blowing behind him in the background on the first A section and Rollins on the second. And I really love how Dizzy sings the end of the A section where he is singing the vocal line, fine as wine. And you can hear on the word wine that he's kind of humming it and building it while he's humming it and singing it and that reminds me of kind of a classic trumpet move to do on the on kind of a plunger mute where you've got the mute on the end of the the bell on the trumpet and he's kind of making the plunger muted sound with his voice and so that's just a neat characteristic you can hear dizzy do that i think is influenced by his trumpet playing yeah, he's humming with like the mm, the M syllable, like mm, and then he's saying like the wine. So you get that mwa, like kind of uh, 
feeling, which is what you'd get from a, a mute, from a, a, a plunger mute that's coming off the horns, the wah kind of uh, thing. So he's emulating right. that by humming mm, and then saying wine. So that's that's really, really cool. And Dizzy's a really good singer. And I think it's just super cool to have Dizzy sing on the head out on this one. And it wouldn't be the most common thing to do to do on a straight because this is just the one of the just super straight ahead album and they're just like dizzy just sings which wouldn't be super common you wouldn't hear that in many other settings unless you were doing the album with a singer specifically so i i love it i think it's a, a cool thing to do here instead of having them play over the melody just have dizzy sing it i i love it and they keep the call and response that they did earlier but now it's between dizzy's vocals and the saxophones um, so there's a lot of common compositional or really arranging techniques that are present in this version of On the Sunny Side of the Street. And I think that's why it's kind of one of the versions that you should really check out. Um, and the ending is really cool, too. They kind of end with this nice ending line that moves upward from the saxophones. And you can tell they're doing different harmonies there. And they end up on a final chord really well together. And so just how this tune is arranged and put together on this version of on the sunny side of the street is really something to be admired yeah i think this is definitely one of my top recordings favorite recordings of this track and just everyone's killing everyone's so killing in their solos there's you can hear their different styles and you get just a little bit of everything and it's so well arranged like max said so i I definitely agree with that sentiment. I think that's what makes it such a great recording of the tune. Let's get into the second track on the album. Um, it's a Sonny Stitt original entitled Eternal Triangle. I really want to let Max do a lot of the talking on this one because this really heavily features Stitt and Rollins. So, Max, you just go ahead and, and take it away. I think you're going to have a lot of thoughts. And this is if you're a saxophone player, this is like you want to dig into this because there's a lot going on. And Max is going to have a lot of cool things to point out on this one. Well, I hope so. Definitely as a saxophone player, this is something you have to check out. Um, Eternal Triangle, it is a Sonny Stitt original composition. It's basically a rhythm changes in B-flat with different chords on the bridge. And that bridge, we have falling two fives, um, where they take up, you know, two bars each for the first four bars. And then the, um, the two fives are moving by half step downward um after each bar so you get a, a a two five from a two five one chord progression um per bar and the last uh four bars of the bridge and this just shows you how versatile two fives are like we use them so often in jazz to get to different places you can use the if you're going to the four chord, you can use a two five to get to the four, the two five of the four, or like this, they're just using two fives in a chromatic fashion, half steps down. And it just shows you how versatile and it's just like, so, you know, so cool to see two fives get used in different ways. And they sound so good. They sound so good, like on the ear. So it's, that's a cool different way to use uh, two fives and to kind of change the, the, the changes to a rhythm change a little bit and make it unique. It's also good to point out that they're playing pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a fast rhythm changes with a, with a different bridge. And so that's the basis of the composition. Um, so, so it's a little, you know, 
simpler or more in not simpler, but it's more ingrained in a jazz musician's foundation to um, play well on a rhythm changes because it's kind of one of the fundamental forms of jazz music of classic jazz. And so that's what they're pulling from here and they can play at a faster tempo um, because of that. And a lot of times you do a rhythm changes kind of up tempo. Um, so that's another wow factor of this track. The other wow factor is that it is 14 minutes long. And that is because the jazz players on this version of Eternal Triangle, in my opinion, are allowed to be jazz musicians. So they are taking their time with solos. They're really kind of jamming out, but in a way that's um, not jam session oriented, but it really just lets the players stretch and, 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 it's it's kind of freeing and lib and I don't know liberating to me as a saxophone player um, because if you notice that how long the the sax solos are, Sonny Stitt takes an eight chorus sax solo, <laughs> um, which is kind of uncommon, you know, at least in a recording session setting. But here they let it happen, and I love that aspect of this version of Eternal Triangle. You'll notice on the track that Sonny Rollins actually has the first solo. He's got a lot of nice eighth note lines that are consistent and always moving. He's got a classic sharp 11 lick idea right at the 46-second mark. At 58 seconds, he's taking an idea and moving it downward to follow the chord changes. He's got some long phrasing at 120 to 129. You can hear how well he's connecting one idea to another, and just his dexterity on the instrument is unbelievable. There's lots of connecting ideas. He has some swing-oriented playing right at 132 to 136, and I think both of these guys, Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins, part of their foundational um, approach is influenced by swing-era players because they were coming up the transition from swing to bop and this i just think that there's some of that in their playing that is evident from their improvisations and you can hear that at the 132 to 136 mark from sonny rollins um as the backgrounds from the other two horn players enter in he also has some nice quarter note ideas at the end of the bridge i like kind of just just doing the quarter notes sometimes especially at a faster tempo it just um brings a nice dimension to the rhythm that you're playing and it kind of lets uh, you know kind of faster tempo improvisational ideas breathe a little bit better so he's doing that um, during that bridge and his rhythmic development at two minutes to two minutes and eight seconds is really killer he references the melody as well later on at 219 um, he keeps going keeps going till 254 and then we get kind of more rhythmic playful stuff from him later on and it's always super swinging um and at the tail end of his solo he's kind of ending his solo at the top of the a section in the form of the tune into kind of where sunny stit is supposed to start his solo you know typically you start at the top of the form but sunny stit really starts his solo at the in between the fourth and the fifth bar of the form because the tail end of sunny rollins's solo goes into the top of the form yeah, and this is, we've seen this happen before. I just want to bring this up on our um, episode where we do T.S. Monk's uh, mm-hmm. two, one groove, two continents, one groove. Um, when Helen Sung plays 
through the A section a little bit. Uh, so just unique, and it, it happens in jazz and for different reasons, you know. So, yeah, I think that's unique, Max. Why, I just, why don't you tell us about this this Sonny Stitzel, because this is the one that's it's there's a lot to get into. Sonny Rollins, a fantastic solo, but this Sonny Stitzel, like Max said, it's eight courses. Let's let's get into this one a little bit, Max. <laughs> well, as a PSA public service announcement, I cannot really go over everything that's in Sonny Stitzel solo. You know, when we talk about all the different licks and ideas and approaches he's taking, but there are many to mention that that I'll talk about. And you know, Sonny Rollins's solo, I think, was four choruses. Um, and so Sonny Stitz is double the length. Um, so that's, <laughs> we would need a whole episode to talk about Sonny Stitz. So like if we wanted to let Max really get, he, he could take an hour talking about this. So we'll just get the most important parts of it for Max on this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. We'll do a condensed version, but just to say that Sonny Stitz solo, you know, it's always on point. Um, and as I mentioned, he kind of starts in the fifth or sixth bar of the form because of the bleed in from the end of Rollins's solo. But he comes in hot with eighth notes galore. Um, he's not skipping a beat coming in, even though it's later on in the form than where you would normally start. And so it doesn't deter from what he's doing at all. Again, we've talked about his cadential phrasing and how he's great at ending one section and going into another. You can hear that at the end of the, the second A section here. At 318, he plays a really common idea that I've heard him do on records with Gene Ammons. Um, and, and some of the licks that Sonny Stitt does are some of the licks or ideas that Gene Ammons also does, or vice versa. And you can hear at 318, he's kind of doing that. It's a very common blues or rhythm changes lick where he's moving upward on the horn very rhythmically. Um, but it's super soulful. It's super in the pocket. And it's it's just, it, you know, it brings in both the 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 great thing about jazz improvisation, both, you know, what we would intellectually think about an idea and what we, what we would emotionally feel about a rhythmic or, um, heady, um, improvisational idea. So Sonny Stitt is great at bringing those two together into his playing. He's not just technique and he's not just soul, but he's both. And he, and he, um, really brings that out at different times when he's soloing. At 334, you can hear a falling eighth note idea that matches the falling 2-5 chords that we were talking about during that part of the bridge. And it's so perfect how well he lines up what he's playing on the horn with where the rhythm section is and the chords, you know, where they um, start and, and move to the next one. He's got some false fingerings at 344 where we talk about with the saxophone, you know, fingering a note and then adding or taking away fingers to change the sound of the note. And so that's kind of a swing era idea. And so he does that at 344. And I think at 410, he has some really nice, awesome, diminished rising ideas. And there's always a reference to the blues somewhere in a solo. So he does a blues lick 417 to 420. Has some great falling eighth note ideas again at 427. And during that part of the bridge, you know, he does that in conjunction with rising eighth note ideas during that same section. So you can hear how he um, plays differently up the horn and down the horn in those different sections. Um, and then at 454, 
he you know he's doing more of that at 511 is another diminished idea this time falling downward so a lot of times he'll move upward with the diminished lick but at 511 it's the opposite direction there's another diminished lick at 534 and he's got some nice swing rhythmic ideas 552 to 557 on what i call the wobble which is you know that b flat swing era thing where you're fingering e flat but you skip the g finger on the tenor sax and you get a, a a wobble in between the b flat and the g note and you can hear him referencing that right around that 552 557 mark he has some repeating blues licks at 605 and so that proves again it's okay to repeat an idea um altogether like i said it's eight courses of soloing the amount of language and what he's doing is absolutely incredible the way he connects his uh, sorry the way he connects his ideas and moves seamlessly from one improv idea to the next is something to be adored i dare anyone i dare any saxophone player to play a better solo on this than the sunny Stitt solo i don't know if you can yeah and like like we had mentioned this sunny Stitt solo it's just one of the most expansive saxophone solos I've heard in a long time. There's so much going on. Like Max touched on so many different things. And he just has such an extensive use of different techniques, such as rhythm, scales, licks, ideas. And like Max said, how to connect them all together. So this is a must-listen solo. There's so much going on. It's just, it's kind of like a textbook on how to play the jazz saxophone and how to connect different ideas together. And it's always swinging. It's always, it always feels good too. Mm -hmm. You know, not only is the technique there, but it, the soul is there too because of how well it's in the pocket. And I just think his solo is just a little more on point than Sonny Rollins here. Um, and I hate to do the whole comparison, you know, which tenor player did the better solo on the on the track. You know, that's kind of a cliche when you have two tenor players on the same recording. But here, I think Sonny Stitt takes it. And and to me, there's really no question about it, even though I love what Sonny Rollins is doing. Just everything we're getting from Stitt. And it is a Stitt composition. So maybe, you know, he felt like he could because it's stuff he's worked out. It's stuff he's into. It's his own song. So, you know, maybe he felt more free to, to, to take it and run with it. But there's so much from Sonny Stid here. I don't know how you can't learn something from the solo. Yeah, and I, I really just love how they let them, each of them kind of stretch out on this one. And it feels like it's definitely rooted in the bebop style. In the swing era, we get a lot of kind of multiple soloists, one chorus a piece, that kind of thing. And then in bebop, guys like charlie parker they really start to flesh out this style where they're starting to stretch out because they have a lot of things there's a lot of development that goes on in bebop so these guys are working through a lot of ideas and it just kind of leads to this era where guys get to stretch a little bit more and kind of showcase their their technique and their their skills a little bit more so i i really appreciate this and it's definitely you know it fits and then they get into kind of a a sax trading kind of bebop battle style section, which is really cool. Max, why don't you tell us about, about that trading section? Yeah. The other cliche that exists when you have two tenor players on a recording session is, you know, where is the battle? Where's the trading? Yeah. Um, and so here we get that. We get Sonny Rollins coming in at six twenty two minute mark 
for um, trading with Sonny Stitt. So we get tenor versus tenor. He comes in quoting uh, a very common rhythm changes melody. Lester leaps in, uh, you know, named after Lester Young, the great tenor player. So he's kind of quoting that melody to Lester leaps in when he comes in um, and they're trading fours. So Rollins has taken four bars of a solo and then Stitt takes the next four bars and they go back and forth at 639. You can hear Rollins playing an idea and moving up a half step. So that's very clever. At 6.53, Rollins plays a song quote or an idea. And then Stitt, when he comes in for his part to trade, he comes in with the same song quote or idea. And so that's a common, you know, soloistic transitioning technique to do. Um, And it's just playful and fun. You know, if I quote what you're doing and you quote what I'm doing, you know, we're going back and forth. It's kind of like banter between two friends. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations going on when they're trading. Yeah, I just love how seamlessly you kind of said banter. Like, it seems like they're able to just kind of like pass the the baton or the torch like back and forth, like with how seamless they're able to transition, you know, from each four bars. I, I just really like that. And yeah, they'll kind of play with an idea that the other one played or, you know, riff, you know, copy a lick that the other person played. They're just really, really good at this. And so I, I, I definitely dig this as well. Absolutely. There's a cool thing about this trading section because they, they start trading fours and then along the way they start trading eights. Yep. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if that was planned or if it just kind of happened organically Um, Usually it would happen the other way around where you start trading eights and then as you go, you diminish the length. So then you would trade fours after the fact. But here they flip it. And I don't know if that was planned or or if it was organic, but that's the cool thing about this trading section. It could have just been that one of them, instead of taking four one time, they just took eight. They had more to say and they took eight and they're like, all right, this is what we're doing now. We're we're going eight parts, you know? Yeah, I feel like that's that's what happened with this one. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff in their trading section. You can hear how Rollins's rhythmic um, thing is going, you know, right at 719 and 726, where he's playing more rhythmically than melodically or, um, you know, less less technically in terms of um, how many notes he's playing. He's more rhythmic sometimes. Um, so that trading eights happens right at the 737. And it gets a little out a little bit. They, they kind of get playful with the harmony that they're doing right at uh, 8.11. You can hear that. And also you can hear some cool stuff from the rhythm section. You can hear the bass a lot of times when those out moments happen. He's just plucking one note mm-hmm. constantly. You know, I don't know if it's just the five. Just the root or the five, yeah. Yeah, usually it's the root or five, but he's just doing that. Da, 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 da. And it's cool to... Also, it's a 14-minute long song, so the bass is probably <laughs> doing that to give his fingers a rest. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, anyway, you can also hear some references to to some Thelonious Monk changes on rhythm changes that they're pulling from. There's some cool ideas at 836 from Sonny Rollins. Um, and then the trumpet gets a solo after the saxophone trading, and so Dizzy comes in right around the 8 end of the eight minute into the nine minute mark. Um, And I'm not sure why Dizzy did not go first because of the energy that we get from the tenor trading and the amazing Sonny Stitt solo and the, the really cool playful Sonny Rollins solo. There's just so much energy there musically 
that I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have Dizzy solo on this track or maybe have him do a shorter first solo or something. What did you think about that? Yeah, I think it just does Dizzy such a disservice because one thing is his solo is super swinging, but it's just it it's so hard for him to match the energy that's been put forward. So to put him after these two guys and what the you know the battle it just it's it i don't think it 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 doesn't seem like it's in the right place to me it seems out of place and so yeah i just he could have gone first or just not have a solo on this one i don't yeah i don't know i don't think it was on him i think it's more of a compositional thing on on this one yeah i think you're right um because we just had eight almost nine minutes of saxophone galore (laughs) yeah and it's hard to come in you know with something super special after that i mean it's possible um and dizzy he has a nice solo he has some really cool high notes has some really neat blues ideas right around 955 he's very rhythmic at 1012 i love also the background ideas that happen behind dizzy from the saxes they're they're, uh, it sounds like they're quoting a lick from the Jumpin' Blues. If you don't know that tune, it's mm-hmm. it's a blues melody. And it sounds like the last four bars of the Jumpin' Blues um, melody is in their background idea. So that's a cool connection there. Um, so that's something to listen for during Dizzy Solo is the way the backgrounds are being used. And again, a lot of that time we're getting some repeating back, you know, back and forth to one note plucking from the bass player intermittently through Dizzy solo. So he's doing what he was doing during some of the trading for the, from the tenor saxes underneath Dizzy. So it's cool to listen for the bass playing as well underneath Dizzy solo. Um, and then we also get a piano solo from Ray Bryant. I don't know what, what you think about the piano solo? I wasn't expecting a, a rhythm section solo at all on this track, but it, they do have one. Yeah, one thing I want to mention before I get into the piano solo is the stamina for these guys to be able to play at this tempo for 14 minutes, the rhythm section. There's yep. definitely like a shout out there and it doesn't drag at all. Like they are their tempo is pushing and swinging the whole time. So, yeah, that's it's a really and so I'm not surprised to just get him kind of at times just be like, "All right, let's just hit the root for a while and, you know, let my hands recover a little bit before I start <laughs> yeah. walking it, you know, whatever crazy tempo we're at." But yeah, so I also was not really expecting a piano solo on this one. Like we said with Dizzy, it can be extremely hard to match the energy from horn players even you know even the it can be hard to match a trumpet player's energy on the piano going after uh a trumpet and this is just a track that's so burning and there's so much energy to it but i think that ray bryant does a really nice job on the solo with what you know what he's got going on there's a lot of bop lines which makes sense given the tempo and the changes but he also is able to incorporate some good use of rhythm and space and one thing is there there's stuff going on in the left hand, but it's done pretty subtly in the beginning of the solo. It's very dynamically. It's You can barely hear what he's doing in his left hand, but he is doing stuff in his left hand. But then he uses his left hand to build the dynamics throughout the solo. And by the end of the solo, he's using his left hand, you know, it's you can hear it pretty loudly so i think that's a cool technique that he's doing there it can be hard to match the energy but i think he does a good job of at least building his solo well throughout even though it's kind of an unexpected piano solo to have um he does some cool things in it and i think his left hand is is pretty cool there 
Absolutely. We also get a drum feature because um, we get some trading fours with the drums um, back and forth with Dizzy. Um, and so that's kind of cool. Everyone does kind of get a chance to shine on this track because you can hear what the bass is doing behind players and then everyone else does have some soloing. Um, so that's a neat aspect to this uh, Eternal Triangle track. And at 1308, 1320, you can hear some really cool high notes that, that Dizzy Dizzy does and how he treats those and goes in and out of them. It's really special. And you can kind of hear why his nickname is Dizzy Gillespie because everything he's doing on the trumpet is making me a little dizzy. But uh, it's great stuff. And then they just do the head out one time through and there's kind of a cool sweeping upward outro lick that they do. And um, and then the, the track just kind of stops after those, those outro licks. Yeah, and I just want to say that it's pretty easy to feature everyone when you play a track for 14 minutes. So it's, That's you know, <laughs> there definitely is more of a feature of the saxophone players, but everyone gets a, a little bit of a, a turn on this one, which when you play a track for, you know, a quarter of an hour, that's uh, easier. to do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just amazing how long Sonny Stitt solo is. I can't get enough. I, um, I think I'll be referencing that track for the rest of my life. I mean, it's crazy. That would be uh, an incredible one to transcribe. How long would it take you to transcribe that cell? If you if you just were listening and transcribing, not using any kind of aid, what will, how long do you think it would take you? I don't know. It would take quite a while. Um, I feel like it would take weeks. I mean, unless you yeah, were just at it would. hours and hours a day. Oh, yeah. I know. It would take weeks. Um for you to do it the right way. You know, a lot of times when you're transcribing, you don't want to do too much, you know, for each session that you transcribe. But if you do, you know, eight bars a day, maybe, um, you know, you do, <laughs> you would have to do eight, eight bars. Times. Oh I don't God. know. Eight bars a day times eight courses is, I don't know. A lot. Uh, That's a yeah. lot of days. I mean, how, I many, guess, how many bars is the form? Is it a 32 bar form? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I um, want to do some quick math. Hold on. You t keep talking for a second. I'm going to do some quick math. <laughs> well, it, it is something I've, I've thought about doing. I, I think I will transcribe the solo. Uh, it will just take forever. There are 256 but bars in Sunny Stitch solo. If you did eight bars a day, it would take you 32 days and a whole month and some change just to transcribe it and then you know it's all about how well do you do it playing along with him you know can you get it up to tempo can you get all the nuances can you get his sound can you get his articulations can you get um, just his overall style that takes a while to do and so with that long of a solo you're looking at probably two and a half to three months of really if you really want to do it the right way, getting all those nuances in there. Yeah. It's going to take you a quarter of a year. Yeah. Especially <laughs> with like this, like the stuff he's playing on this. solo, there are going to be, it can be hard enough for me to learn one chorus of a solo when it's just like pretty simple and bluesy. Sometimes with some runs, it can take me a while. Some of the stuff he's doing on this is not, it's not going to be like a, let me learn this, this, these three bars in or four bars in a matter of 15 minutes. Like it's going to take you, you know, it might take you over an hour or two just to try to nail down, especially getting it up to tempo, too. So, Also, there's likely, you know, quite a bit of, of repetition, you know, a lot of repeating ideas or doing ideas in a number of different ways. But foundationally, they're almost the same. 
Um, and so that's the cool thing about both Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stid is that they do that really, really well. So, you know, it, it, there would be some, some repeating ideas in there for sure. So, you know, some things would already be under your fingers as you go along the transcription and, and really hammering it out on, on your instrument. Um, so that's one thing about it that, that may speed up that process a little bit. But, yeah, it would definitely take a while. I challenge anyone who's listening who is a saxophone player to transcribe and learn this entire solo. I will be amazed if anyone is, you know, that <laughs> well, I mean, it it'd make you yeah. so much better of a player through doing it. So it, it'd be worth it. But I'd just be amazed if someone took the time and dedicated it to, to learning the solo. Yeah, cats have done it, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it would take a while and getting it, you know, right with Stit, that's the key factor when you transcribe something is, is, is getting all those nuances in there as well as the notes and the rhythms. Um, so it's definitely a challenge, but there's a lot in there to learn from. And then on the album, we get a blues number, the next track on the album called After Hours. And so this is a 12-8, 12-bar blues song originally written by Avery Parrish, um, first recorded by the Erskine Hawkins uh, band or orchestra in 1940. And if you don't know, Avery Parrish was a, was a piano player born in Alabama in 1917, graduated in 1935, excuse me. And by that time, apparently it's been mentioned in uh, newspaper clippings that he was married to the vocalist Velma Middleton, which How we talked. <laughs> Isn't that wild? We were just talking about Velma on Satchmo at Pasadena during that episode. She's on a couple of tracks from that album, and she did so much with Louis Armstrong. We were just talking about Velma Middleton. Yeah, it's crazy the different connections, and we'll get them all the time of people, you know, the jazz community, just so many people that knew each other and I'm married and different connections. So that's, that's a wild, wild fact on that one. Yeah. So that was Avery Parrish. That was married to her, I think very briefly, but still, you know, really cool connection. If you don't know, Parrish worked with Erskine Hawkins, who was a trumpeter and band leader. He's really known for the tune tuxedo junction, which was copied or, or covered rather from other big bands um, in the early forties. And Avery Parrish got into a bar fight in 1943. And unfortunately, that fight kind of disabled him and he couldn't really play after that. Um, and unfortunately, he passed in 1959 due to unknown causes. Some people say he fell down a flight of stairs. Apparently, he was a really heavy drinker and he was not careful with substances. And he's just one of those kind of sad stories we see in the history of jazz where, you know, cats, they, 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 they kind of lose focus and they get distracted and, you know, maybe they, they had a hard upbringing or something that really ultimately ends their, their, their presence on this planet and just creates a, a hard, really sad demise to, to the endings of their life, especially this one with Avery, you know, because he had a, what 16 years or so where he couldn't physically play and so if you've been doing that for your life and and that's been your goal and what you've been all about that's you know really unfortunate yeah there are definitely a number of 
really sad stories. The story of Lee Morgan. We won't talk about that now, but we'll get in. We can get into that when we do a Lee Morgan album. There are just some sad stories in jazz, and like Max was saying, you know, different things. And jazz musicians back then weren't known as being making the healthiest decisions and choices. So, yeah, definitely some some guys who we didn't get to you know get their full life or catalog or that kind of thing so but yeah let's get into the the tune itself it starts out with a piano feature from ray bryant and this feature is very very blues oriented and when i say blues it's more like a traditional blues pianist such as if you were listening to ray charles or otis span than listening to like a bop jazz piano player which I think is cool. Some people might, some like purist might find this kind of hokey or not swinging to be playing in this style that's not really, it's not super jazz. It's more traditional blues with a lot of the trills and stuff instead of doing like, you know, some runs and stops and things like that. Um, I think it's cool. I think it, it fits the fact that the song is in 12-8 pretty well. Um, so yeah, there's a boogie woogie kind of stride going on in his left hand, which is rare, very reminiscent of Ray Charles. If you think about the tune, the mess around, um, that kind of boogie woogie stride, this is a much slower tune, but he's doing a very similar thing, which is highlighted by his brother on the bass as well. They're kind of playing the same rhythm there. And yeah, from, like I said, from 127 to 154, it's just blues trills on his right hand. But one thing that's cool is he's doing chord changes with his left hand, which is pretty cool, and it sounds pretty good. Um, but, yeah, it's just a blues trill for almost 30 seconds there. So, yeah, they really start outlining the the 12-8 feel at 207, which Ray Bryant kind of starts that, and then the rest of the rhythm section kind of picks up on it, and they're kind of outlining that that feel. And I, I think that's really hip. And I, I really dig that. I think it's a really cool intro. It's definitely unique. And it fits the style of the the song really well. Max, what did you think about the, the intro on this one? I love it. And I love that it's a piano feature. You get Ray Bryant, you know, kind of originally from the gospel church tradition from the, I think, very blues-drenched tradition and you you can hear that here with what ray bryan is doing you don't get the horns coming in until the three minute and 18 mark <laughs> so the first three minutes it's all about ray bryant all about the piano all about the blues all about the 12 8 um you're right it's a little more i don't know pop uh influenced but i love the 12 8 feel it doesn't bother me i love a, a traditional blues and so i love everything ray bryan is doing and then towards the tail end of, of Bryant's playing, he's kind of referencing and playing the me the main melody of the tune after hours. So he, he kind of starts getting featured, and then he goes into the melody before the horns come in right around the 320 mark. And we get a first horn solo from Dizzy Gillespie, and he has some really nice ideas, some cool lip falls, nice use of space, Overall, very well thought out blues playing and each of the players on this album are great at playing the blues. And I love that you can hear that on this track after hours because they each showcase their blues playing really well. 
Yeah, I one thing that I love is that Dizzy goes first on this track. It kind of bothered us on the last track when he didn't go first. I think it just it does a great job of just kind of letting the solos develop well, having Dizzy go first. He, like Max said, a really great use of space, lots of space on this one, and really blues-oriented lines. And one thing that I think is interesting to note is he's pretty much just using the blues scale. There's not a whole lot that he's drawing from other scales. He's basically staying on the blues scale the entire time, and it just shows you how much you can do with just the blues scale and how versatile it is and how you can take it and manipulate it and use space and use different ideas to play over the blue scale. Max, what do you think about, about that? I would say a lot of what he's doing is, is foundational to the blues in general. If you ask me, the blue scale does not exist. (laughs) And I know I'm, I know I'm making some people upset or making some people question my validity as what I do. But to me, the blue scale is something that's made up in order to teach beginning improvisers something to pull from when they're starting to improvise on a blues or in jazz in general. And so to me, it's an educational technique to think about the blues scale. I don't think Dizzy is thinking blues scale. I think he's just using similar notes to what we refer to as the blues scale um, in, in ways that are uh, reminiscent of things essential to blues playing, especially on the horn. Um, because in the, in quote unquote, the blue scale, you get the sharp 11, you get the flat three, you get some blue notes. And so I think he's pulling from blue notes and blues ideas and common blues technique, um, when soloing, not from the blue scale. Uh, I think that's something we can think about it now after the fact and, and reference what he's doing or what these players are doing. Um, you know, maybe he's pulling more from the the flat threes or he's bending notes or he's, you know, moving from the root to the sharp 11 down to the four, you know, maybe he's playing off the four more, which is a common blues technique, but he's not necessarily doing the blues scale. Yeah. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is that what we know as the blues scale now, he's pulling a lot from that versus like, you know, using things, different scales, diminished scales necessarily, right. different bop scale, what, you know, what would be play in, in a bop setting. He's hitting a lot of those blue, you know, those blue notes with the, you know, the the sharp four, the four, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, and then we get a second solo uh, on the track with Sonny Rollins. Um, and again, it's it, there's some nice use of space there's a lot of blues techniques that he's doing and at the seven minute to 727 mark you can hear some of my favorite type of rollins uh and his soloing on this album he's messing around with one note and bending it and doing it almost uh he's almost kind of screaming some notes you know it's a very emotional very emotive um idea what he's doing and in the background you can hear uh, Dizzy or somebody verbally, you know, vocally yell out, yeah, in the background or cop the idea on his instrument. You know, this is a very blues oriented emotional moment in the Sonny Rollins solo. Yeah, I really like how dig he deeps, um, how deep he digs into this part. And you can tell he's really feeling it at this point. And one thing I kind of want to mention, there's something I want to go back to. Um, but yeah, you hear Dizzy kind of get into it. 
There are also other points on this track at 5.06 during Dizzy's solo. You can kind of hear some talking in the background of the recording. And there's like two different like things about this. When Dizzy, when it's part of the actual recording and it's Dizzy reacting to something that's going on, I like hearing that. But there are times when you can just hear like background talking and you can't tell who it is or what the purpose is on this recording. And there, I don't feel that that's, I feel like it can be distracting at times. Like when I was listening to this, I had my headphones on and I was listening and I thought that my TV had turned on because I heard like talking in the background at that point. So I think that can be a little distracting at points. And another thing is the transition from Dizzy solo to Sonny Rollins solo. It almost sounds like the song is ending, but then they kind of keep it rolling into Rollins solo. And I just feel like it's kind of an awkward change in the feel from the drummer before they really settle in to Rollins solo. But there's a, they do this transition again a few times, and it's just this time that they do it for the first time, it feels like there's a a bit of a, a lack of clarity. I don't know. It doesn't feel super intentional, and it feels like there's just a bit of a lack of clarity in what's going on in this transition. So I'm like, oh, the song's ending. Oh, wait, they're going to keep going. And I was like, did was that on purpose like what 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 was that so that's that's something to know in that transition of solos i think part of that is they may not have known the solo order or they may not have gone over what the solo order was going to be so they're looking at each other who's going to take the next solo and you know a lot of times um i'll just you know see who who calls it first <laughs> and yeah. i can be a little hesitant to take the first solo if there's multiple horns on the gig or if you know i'm not the band leader so i to me i that's what i suspect that that's what occurred also this track after hours is 12 minutes long so this is the other track on the album that's really long and so maybe another thing is you know the rhythm section has to has to keep up the energy or or they want to change up maybe what they're doing for the next soloist or something mm -hmm. so i just think there's a lot transitioning there not just one solo to another but maybe they didn't know who was soloing next and maybe rhythm section wanted to do something different yeah yeah so that yeah i there's a lot going on there i just wonder what the intention there was um like i was saying but yeah i i really do like Rollins solo and then they do a similar transition like i said to the first one into Sonny Stitt solo, but this one is much more clean and it doesn't sound like they're trying to end the tune. It it just actually sounds like a smooth transition into Sonny Stitt solo. And I really wonder if this is the transition they were trying to do the first time and they just hit it cleanly the second time. Probably. Um, you're probably right about that. And then the Sonny Stitt solo, I think really comes out to me personally. I love his song quote at 743 and he starts off kind of with like half notes and he's just mm -hmm. really letting the feel breathe. He has some great falling diminished ideas at 803, 809 to 813. It's just superb jazz language he's doing at 830. Great blues ideas. 912. He quotes when the saints go marching in <laughs> and he's pulling off um, from that opening line of the melody, the saints go marching in. There's also just a lot of great one bar and two bar ideas that we get from Sonny Stitt. You can hear some longer note ideas at 940 to the 10 minute mark. Um, so he's pulling from all sorts of places and messing around with different lengths of notes and different rhythms and different time feels. 
and we get some faster common Sonny Stitt lines and some great improv ideas at the 11.03 to 11.07 mark. And so there's just some really cool things that Sonny Stitt is doing on his solo. Yeah, he comes in super swinging on this one. Like Max said, I really like that descending, diminished lick lick at 8.03. There's one thing that he does that's really cool is he takes a line and he repeats it at 8.43, but then the second time that he repeats the line, he kind of seamlessly works it into a moving like line after that and I think that's really a, a cool technique is to take an idea and repeat it but the second time that you play it let it lead into something else which is cool and I really like the mix of kind of longer notes and ideas along with like the faster moving bop lines and the blues ideas I think it's just he's really showcasing his versatility on on this album and how great of a player technically is and you know so many different styles and and techniques. And one thing is at 1003, we get that uh, blues piano trill that I was talking about under the sax solo. And it just really is, you know, reminiscent of a more traditional blues setting, something you might hear in like a Chicago blues setting, maybe a T-Bone Walker, you know, one of the guys playing behind him. So I, I think that's uh, interesting to note there. And then they do this transition again that I talked about and it's clean again this time going into the piano solo. So it, it feels like this is, you know, they've got it down. The first time they kind of flubbed it, and now they it's it's clean the, the rest of the time through. Yeah, that transition. Here they're going back to the uh, melody with Ray Bryant riffing in the background. And I love what Ray Bryant is doing behind um, the horns when they're playing the melody. You can hear that trad blues approach like you were saying. It's more like a blues-oriented group there than a jazz bebop-oriented group. Um, I also love how they come down dy- uh, dynamically with the dynamics. They they're they're lowering the the energy a little bit and just the overall volume as they play the melody out, and it eventually fades out. And so this is, I think, the only track on the album that fades out. Yeah, and I I think that's definitely an important thing to note because this is such a high energy album that it's it's good to have kind of a release from that at points and that's one thing they do well here is that they kind of bring the dynamics down and kind of ease out of that that high energy. So let's get into the final track on the album entitled I Know That You Know. Max, why don't you tell us a little bit about this one? Yeah, this song was first for first performed in 1926 it's a classic tune written by vincent humans who was a broadway composer known for songs like more than you know t for two and without a song Um, he's really known for writing short three or four note melodies and repeating them but underneath the melodic idea he's shifting or changing the harmony underneath each repetition and you can hear that in his composition without a song which is a tune I, I like to call sometimes on a gig. Um, there, it's just really cool the way the harmony moves underneath a simpler melody. And Vincent Humans was was great in his compositions of doing that. He worked with almost any lyricist you can think of, Ira Gershwin, uh, Gus Kahn, Oscar Hammerstein, Irving Caesar. So he worked with a lot of different people, but his career was cut short due to him catching, and he had a long battle with tuberculosis. And so he passed in 1947 at the young age of 46, 
due to his bout with uh, tuberculosis. And he's really, he wrote, you know, roughly a hundred songs, maybe less. Um, but I think quite a few of those, you know, probably one fifth of those became jazz standards or common American uh, jazz songs that, that people covered. So you'll see Vincent Humans' name quite a bit when you research the history of some of these tunes. Yeah, and another thing we spoke about, guys, you know, different reasons and passing and some sad endings, just modern medicine, things like tuberculosis and things like that. In the 40s, you know, it was much harder to get through things like that. We talked about um, Velma Middleton, and when she came down with, what was it that she... Well, she had a stroke. Oh, and were, yeah. Yeah, and they were on tour out of the country, and apparently she did not get really well um, because I don't know if she had a coma, but she was basically dealing with that stroke for a month, and then she passed away. So the health facilities weren't up to par. Maybe she wasn't getting the right medicine. And so you're right. That's an instance with Velma Middleton's passing where you can see, you know, just the uh, development of, of Western medicine and, and how things were different back then. Yeah, for sure. So there, you, you do have this kind of thing where some people didn't live as long of life as maybe they would today. So that's definitely a a case of, of what, what happened here. And I, I really like, this is a a cool and slightly different melody on the head on this one. Um, it kind of have a, has a different feel to it than, than the other, melodies on on the album yeah and this song is not very well covered i know that you know you know it's not one of the top two or three vincent humans tunes that you'll hear cats play but it is an interesting uh, um arrangement of the song that this version you know is it's a faster tempo um it's got a really cool intro because they use kind of the opening lick of the melody as an intro and they repeat it followed by four bars of drum solo so they do that two times through where they have this intro idea and then drums take it intro idea drums which occurs twice and then the head starts and the head is basically a 16 bar form a and an a prime section um and dizzy if you can hear the way they're arranging the melody, Dizzy plays the main melody, and then the saxes have a line underneath that. And it is a really kind of burning tempo, right around 330 beats per minute. Um, so they're, they're, you know, fast tempos, they're not an issue for these players because of how great they are and how well they're interacting. Uh, and here we get a Sonny Rollins solo first, and he absolutely destroys it. I love what Sonny Rollins is doing, and you know, before we were talking about how a rhythm section treats one soloist maybe differently than another, and so here they're doing that. The rhythm section is simply playing, and they're doing hits, rhythmic hits on B1 every two bars, but in between, it's open space, and Sonny Rollins is taking it. So you can hear how well his time is, how well he develops ideas, how superbly you know, he can keep time for himself. He doesn't need the rhythm section to take up those, those spaces. And so just hear what Sonny Rollins is doing during his, his solo and during the whole solo, it's unaccompanied other than those, um, those hits every two bars 
on beat one from the rhythm section. It's absolutely killer. What do you think of that? Dude, I didn't know what to think of it. I I just have Sonny Rollins solo. What the heck? His Like you said, his time and feel while playing over these hits, it's mind-boggling. It's incredible how good his time and feel is. It's impeccable. So, yeah, and the lines are awesome. And one cool thing that he does, which I noticed, is like the only time he'll pause is during the hit on the one. So that's, I'm assuming when he's breathing too, because he, <laughs> yeah. he has incredible breath support. Sometimes he'll play a line and I'm just like, does he ever breathe? But yeah, one thing he'll do is he'll leave, he'll play uh, an idea. And then the only space that he's leaving is that hit. So it's kind of like hit licks, you know, and then hit. And so it's just a really cool, really well done section. It's, if the song would have ended after this, I would have been like, okay, that was the coolest thing I've ever heard. That was awesome. Like, so it was just, it was so, so good. That, that part. I think the, the main, you know, if you really want to dig in and and learn something from this Sonny Rollins solo is pay attention to his phrasing. Sometimes he's doing a two bar phrase. Sometimes it's a four bar phrase. Sometimes it's short three and four beat phrases, but his ability to move in and out of those phrase lengths is otherworldly, and it works to create a stream of ideas and just a, a consistency to his solo rather than playing lick to lick to lick over harmony to harmony to harmony. So the way he's, he's connecting ideas, the way where he's putting those ideas is really a lesson and real and just it's not even a lesson. It's something to really enjoy and admire and to really get into and see how playful he is with what he's doing. He's not doing it in a silly way. You know, I don't mean playful as in he's being silly with it or um, insensitive to the music or something. I mean it in that it's otherworldly. It's it's beyond artistry. It's um, something he is one of the best at in this music of doing. It's just so accurate the way he's being playful with his own ideas. And it illustrates the not only the amount of jazz language that he knows, but how well he can simply do something, but it goes beyond the language and goes beyond the basic ideas that we all try to ingrain as jazz players. Yeah, I think when Max says playful, this is a an analogy that just came to my head. It's not playful as in like he's being silly or he's messing around. It's playful as in he's so talented, he's so well studied that it's almost I compare it to a guy like take Kyrie Irving, a basketball player. He he is so good with his handles that it's sometimes it can he can be playful in a way that like he's just showing off his skill because he's so good at what he does. That's kind of the same thing Sonny Rollins does is he's so good that he can take it to a whole nother level and it can seem he can just play around with it because it's that easy for him. That's it's that's what came to mind when you said that. It's just a guy that's so good at the what he's doing. He can he can play around with different things and he can do it so well and it can seem so easy for him even though it's not. That's exactly what I'm getting at or trying to to portray is his ability to do that and the way he does it, his phrasing, it's beyond believable. Um, so after that, unfortunately, the song doesn't end. <laughs> we we got to keep going. 
uh, and there's some more great playing as well. Um, but there's just so much you get from that Sonny Rollins section that it's hard to get as much from everything else, um, unfortunately. So we do get a trumpet solo right at the one minute 56 mark. Um, there's some fast moving bop lines. There's lots of starting an idea on a high note and falling from that high note. Um, so just more classic dizzy improvisatory movement on the horn. And you can just tell how well he is in his dexterity on the instrument and just his lines, how not only how fast moving they are, but how well he goes in and out of them. Yeah, and once again, Dizzy kind of feels like he gets the short end of the stick with having to follow up such an incredible section by Sonny Rollins on this one. But Dizzy really digs into his bop roots, and he kind of shows us why he's the the innovator and the premier bop trumpet player of the era with the lines. The lines are just moving so well. He's moving so much, and they're just woven into the changes really well. So Dizzy just really kind of shows us why he is who he is. So I, I, this solo is really good from Dizzy, but it's just hard. That section from Sonny Rollins, just what in the world? It's just, it's hard to follow up, but yeah. So, and then after that, we get um, a Sonny Stitt solo and he comes in burning hard and there are just lots of really fast moving lines. And it just seems like on this one, he just really lets go on the chops and he shows what he's made of. It doesn't seem like he's super concerned with like taking an idea and developing it as much as just really getting like digging into the bop lines and just really showing showing the chops, which is cool. I mean, because he's really good and he's got, you know, he's got all the chops. So it's cool to hear him just kind of go at it like that. Yeah, his runs are really amazing. You can hear there are a couple of moments in this solo if you compare it to his Eternal Triangle solo, like uh, I think here there's a couple moments where it's not quite as perfect or he's kind of letting some time, some space pass um, unintentionally, it seemed, rather than the Eternal Triangle solo where I think every moment is killer <laughs> and every idea is, is well-placed and, and connects well to the next one. There's a couple moments here where it's not quite as perfect. You can hear that kind of at 337 to 340. Um, you know, that's kind of one moment I'm talking about. And there's really only one or two really of those moments here. But, you you know, try to listen for that. Um, and he also does some kind of high screeching, not so perfect altissimo notes right at 419. Um, I, I dig the, you know, the uh, emotion and the, um, you know, the gutsy approach there. And, and just, you know, the mentality of I'm going to go for it and whatever comes out, comes out. So it's not quite perfect, but it is really kind of swinging and, and, it, and it feels good and it's fun. Um, and it just seems like overall this Sonny Stitt solo is just a little bit more raw. Um, if, if you were to compare and contrast it with his Eternal Triangle solo, but it's great musicianship either way. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. He's kind of just showing off his musicianship, it feels like, on this one, which is cool to see. Well, let's get into our top threes and our Not So Hot. There are only four tracks on the album, so there's uh, not a whole lot of, uh, super lot of decision-making to make. Max, why don't you tell us your, your top three and your Not So Hot track first? Well, because of the amazing Sonny Stitt solo and the fact that it's a sunny stick composition and we get just really some nice stretching on that track my number one is eternal triangle um i 
really can't think of a reason why it would not be my number one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very max thing of uh, you to do there. Yeah. A number two, I have on the sunny side of the street. I love the vocal and the arranging, and it's just a fun version, and it's always swinging. Number three is After Hours. I love the blues, and I love the 12A feel that they're doing, and it's a really nice piano feature. Um, and there's just some fantastic blues playing on on this track, After Hours. My not-so-hot, because it had to exist, um, all I had left to pick from was I know that you know, except for that Sonny Rollins solo during the hits from the rhythm section, <laughs> um, that would be the reason why it's a not why it's not a not so hot. But there has to be a not so hot, and I just think there are some moments, and I know that you know that are are just not quite up to par with the other three tracks that. Um, it unfortunately had to be my not so hot, but I love that Sonny Rollins solo section. It is unbeatable and really hard to match in terms of quality and energy. Yeah. So on my, uh, top three, I actually had on the sunny side of the street as my number one. I just think when I think of this album and when I think of that song, this is one of those recordings that kind of sticks out to me. And I just think it's kind of just a, such a perfect arrangement of the tune. So I, for me, it's my, my number one on the album. But then in kind of a 1A, 1B kind of fashion, uh, my number two track is Eternal Triangle. It's just such a good showcase of these players and their abilities and just such a cool jam. I want to say jam, but just like, yeah, just a stretch and just an exploration of these two saxophone players so i definitely it deserves to be you know 1a 1b with on a sunny side of the street and then i really do like in my number three spot i have after hours i just think it's cool to do you know blues in a different way this isn't the most traditional jazz way to do a blues song it's different and i i enjoy it and i think it's cool that they take that you know that approach to it and then like max said my not so hot I know that you know, and it almost made my top three solely due to Rollins solo. I it almost bumped out after hours, but the it I couldn't just do it just because of the solo. Although honorable mention, Sonny Rollins solo over the hits on I know that you know it it deserves love for sure. It should almost be like a thing where they make that solo section, they put it out as a single. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly oh my um, god it's that's it's it really is incredible that that section from sunny Rollins. yeah i don't know how how you would splice that up but a sunny side up uh single version of i know that you know with just the sunny rollins solo in the head yeah the head exactly yeah <laughs> oh i'm i'm here for that i i don't know yeah uh, that'd be cool if you could play it on the radio well now people these days don't know what music is but all right let's get into our overall album thoughts and ratings i'll go first this week so my overall album thoughts rollins and stitt combined forces with the bop trumpet legend dizzy gillespie to make a hard-hitting and energetic four-track album that the energy that Stitt and Rollins have playing together and playing off of one another is so intense that it really brings out the best of each of them musically. 
There are some all-time solos from each of them that take place on the album, such as Stitt's solo on Eternal Light and Rollins' incredible playing over the rhythm section hits on I Know That You Know. This recording of the standard on the sunny side of the street is one of the most prolific recordings of the tune in the jazz catalog, and it's only fitting that it's on the album entitled Sunny Side Up. I also think that the rhythm section is swinging hard and does a great job of keeping up with the high intensity set forth by the two saxophones. There is a little bit of a lack of clarity in certain moments from the rhythm section, but it's not anything that doesn't resolve extremely quickly. And then my other one other thing I think is that there are times I talked about this when there's some talking in the studio that bleed bleeds into the mix which can be good in certain moments when you want it, but also sometimes can be distracting. My last kind of semi-criticism of the album, one thing I really wish that they had figured out a way to do a ballad on the album, as though I feel with the energy that they set forth, it might have been just super killer to be able to have the ballad edition and you know, feels like maybe the only thing that the album is lacking is, is just a powerhouse ballad with these guys on it. So, but all in all, and I want to shout out Dizzy Gillespie, it kind of, he kind of is in the shadows on this one, but he's kind of a father of jazz and brought so many musicians into, you know, his band and things. So it's, it just feels like he's playing his role super well and he doesn't need to, he can let these guys shine on the album. So there's a shout out to, to Dizzy there as well. And it's just an incredible display of musicianship and the use of the jazz language as a whole. And it should be regarded as such. This album is short and it's sweet, but it allows for the musicians to really stretch their legs and let their playing shine, which I appreciate. This is definitely a crash course of the two sunnies of the saxophone world. And for that reason, I give it an 8.8 out of 10. There are just those few things that detract from bringing this below the 9 out of 10, in my opinion. But the playing on it is in the excellent range. It's just a few things that, you know, about the recording that a couple points get taken off for. Max, what did you think overall about the album? I think this album speaks to the supreme musicality of Sonny Rollins, Sonny Stitt, and Dizzy. You're right, the two Sonnies kind of shine out a lot more from the tracks, but Dizzy does his role well. I think a lot of the arranging of the intros and outros probably comes from him, and so his presence on the album is very evident. The rhythm section interacts nicely throughout, and it's all in all a very hard-driving, very swinging album that should be listened to to by those that are really into the jazz tradition. Um this version of Sunny Side of the Street is timeless and well-known because of the vocal feature of Dizzy, and it also has some really neat arranging. Obviously, the other standout is Stitt's original Eternal Triangle with Stitt's elongated burn-in eight-chorus solo in addition to some classic tenor sax battling and trading with Sonny Rollins. I think this album showcases the blues really well, too, with the track After Hours and also the underplayed Humans classic. I know that you know it's um, I'm glad that they did that tune. I'm glad they did a Vincent Humans tune and the way they play on it is is pretty superb, especially Sonny Rollins's (laughs) uh, solo with just rhythm section hits. It's absolutely killer. I think because of all those tunes. And their interesting arrangements and features. There are moments on here that I would call otherworldly. 
um, just some of the things that Stitt and Rollins and even Bryant and, and Dizzy do at certain moments are just so musically amazing that I am constantly uh, not only entertained, but challenged or um, influenced by something that these players do at different points in their solos. You know, each time I listen, I, I get something new from some, something that they're doing. And so that's, uh, that's just simply amazing. And that means it's, it's a really good record. Um, so because of those terrific solos, the differences in the improvisatory approach, you can hear from the two Sunnies as well as Dizzy's prominent sound and fast moving lines. There's just a lot to listen for with this record. Some consider it a jam session recording, but to me that term neglects the amount of thought that seemingly went into the arranging of the tunes and the way in, in which the different solos on the recording are treated by the rhythm section. To me, it is not a jam session. It is a recording where jazz musicians are allowed to be jazz musicians. They are allowed to stretch. They're allowed to develop. And here they get a chance to do what they ultimately are able to do and can showcase not only their talents and their, their musical abilities, but they give so much to the language of jazz with this album. And it's all in all a great record to me. I think Sunny Side Up should be forever regarded as something unique and something special. Uh, my overall score was a nine out of 10. Yeah. And I, I think you make a lot of great points there. And I think that rating is is right on point. And so that brings our, our overall rating to an 8.9 out of 10 for this album. Definitely an album you have to check out. It's not that long. I think it's 37 minutes in total. Some of the tracks are longer. But this is one that I highly, highly recommend listening to, especially if you haven't listened to much Sonny Rollins or Sonny Stitt. Check this out. It's just, like I said, it's a crash course into these two guys. And it's it's really something to listen to. But let's go uh, before we get into our episode for next week. I want to just go over a few housekeeping things. We now have an Instagram, the Jazz Jam Podcast. Make sure to follow us there. If you want to reach out to us to submit a listener question or if you have an album recommendation, our email is the Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you there. Or you can DM us on Instagram. Either way, we also have a Spotify playlist with all of our top three tracks from every album that we've done, every episode that we've done. So if you just want to kind of, you don't want to maybe listen to entire albums, but you kind of want to get the gist of what we're listening to and what we like, that's a good place to go. That'll be linked in the, the show notes below. And that's pretty much it for our housekeeping stuff. Uh, now we'll get into our episode for next week. Next week we have a new ep or a new album um, by the Blue Note saxophone player Emmanuel Wilkins. It's his most recent album. It came out earlier this year. It's entitled The Seventh Wonder. And I think we're doing a really good job of kind of getting into different types of newer jazz music. We definitely have hit on some some different things with some African jazz music some more funk and groove style stuff and this one is definitely has a different um feel to it maybe more of a a lighter pop approach i don't want to say pop necessarily but it, it definitely has a different feel to it um than a straight ahead or like maybe a funk or an african jazz um influenced album so 
yeah, excited to get into this one. I haven't listened to this whole album. I've listened to some of the stuff off of it. So, yeah, excited to see what um, Emmanuel has going on here. Uh, Max, any thoughts to close us out? No, I just really have been enjoying what we're doing. Um, I really want people to to treat this as, as something, you know, where you can, you know, you can treat it how you want to treat it. If you want to listen to the album and then listen to, to us back and forth in between songs or in between solos or at the same time or one after the other, um, I think that's that's a great way to do it. I just uh, appreciate anyone who's listening, anyone who's who's engaging with us. We want to keep going and keep doing this. So feel free to let us know how we're doing at the Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts, recommendations, um, any disagreements with us? Maybe you really agree with us or, or something, or you have a story um, that you're reminded of from what we're talking about, or if you have questions about about gigging about music or about jazz history feel free to reach out to us um there's so many albums to go over i don't think we can <laughs> go over every single album unless we do this for hundreds and hundreds of years <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe we will max but maybe. yeah i i really appreciate what you say there and i just want to say there's so many ways to consume what we're doing you know, if you don't want to listen to the whole episode, we're going to start um, making it so we'll put the the timestamps in there. So if you just want to hear our thoughts, you can also go to our website and just read our overall thoughts and our reviews, our ratings. If you just like would like to do that, obviously, some people are going to want to hear everything we have to say and really take a deep dive into what we're doing. But yeah, I any way that you want to consume it is great. We're just glad that we can share our love of jazz music with you, whether it be just listening to our Spotify playlist, checking out our website, listening to certain parts, just listening to the albums that we're listening to. I just really appreciate it. And yeah, we, we'd love to interact with you. So feel free to anything you have, um, questions, anything, reach out to us on Instagram or at our, our on our email address. And so, yeah, that's going to close us out for this album. I just want to say thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad that Max brought this one up. I needed to listen to this album. So for Max Levy, I ha- I'm Dwayne Gunnels, and this has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast.